Good to see you today. Let's take out our Bibles and uh, turn to that last book in your Bible, in case you can't find it. Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 2. You remember in chapter 1 we saw that anybody who studies Revelation is going to be blessed. And you're saying, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. Uh, but it says that right there, that if we uh, read and hear and take to heart this prophecy, what is written in it, uh, that we will be blessed. We read that in chapter 1. We saw that the reason is we're going to have a vision of Jesus Christ, and that's what every man needs is a vision of who Jesus Christ is. When we see Him as He is, we are uh, arrested right in our tracks, and we begin to see what life is all about. And then we come to chapter 2, and we see that this Jesus talks. And he talks to his church. He rules over his church. He's the Son of Man in radiant glory, walking among the lampstands, which represent the churches. So he is among his people, and he's communicating to us. And we've seen in chapters 2 and 3 that he now is speaking to the seven churches that John the Apostle is seeing from the island of Patmos. And it goes kind of around in a circle, starting with Ephesus. And we're going to look at Smyrna today. And uh, if you've been to Ephesus, and we mentioned this last time, you know that there are some fabulous ruins there that you might want to see sometime if you're ever going through Istanbul and want to drive south a little bit. But then if you just go north to Smyrna, Smyrna's still there. It's called Ishmir uh, in Turkey today, Ishmir. And you'll notice the vowels are similar, Shmir, S-M-R, Smyrna. Uh, it comes from uh, the same word. So Smyrna is still there, and there are uh, churches and chapels Old ones that are, you can find ruins there in Ishmir, uh, where it is said that uh, John the Apostle uh, w- preached, and where uh, it is said, uh, this is legendary, but probably has some good historical precedent to it, that Jesus' mother Mary uh, would have gone to Ishmir as well, because you remember on the cross, uh, Jesus looked at John and said, Behold your mother, and looked at his mother and said, Behold your son. And basically, he was saying to John the Apostle, would you please take care of my mother? Uh, And so uh, history, non-biblical history tells us that John did just that, and and Mary herself uh, was buried in Ishmir. And there's a a, a chapel there to uh, Mary in Ishmir. So these these spots are very easy to find even today. But uh, John records that he received a voice from this uh, glorious Lord Jesus Christ to give to the angel in Ishmir or in Smyrna. And the angel, we believe, would be the the pastor there. And so let's look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. This is probably the shortest message. I think that preacher must have been a former business guy. Uh, He preached short sermons. So we'll we'll see what, what, what the Lord Jesus says to him. Look at it. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. 
Okay, let's just look very quickly at this format that we discussed last week, and let's see that this message to the church in Smyrna fits the format. And you notice there were seven elements, the church name, a name for Christ, a commendation, a critique, instruction, warning, and an exhortation and promise. And you'll notice right away what's unusual about this letter is that there's not a critique, not really, and there's not a severe warning as in the other ones. So when Christ looks at this particular church, he sees a church that is faithful, and he's basically exhorting them to continue to be faithful. So it's, it's a very uh, courageous and bold and loving uh, church. But let's look at the, the way it's laid out. First of all, it's to the church in Smyrna. And notice the title for Christ. And this is going to be relevant to the message he sends them. In every case, the, the title for Christ applies to the instruction or the warning or the promise that's given to the people. And isn't that interesting for us? Because in almost any circumstances in which you find yourself, you will find that there's a name of Christ that applies to it. Uh, Christ has many, many names. We won't have time to go through them all. But you, you'll find scores of names for Christ in the Bible. And you can't get in a circumstance for which some aspect of the character or the work of Jesus Christ doesn't apply to you. And that's exactly what uh, Jesus is doing in each of these messages. He is recalling one of his names to encourage the people to whom he's writing. So here he says, the first and the last who died and came to life again. We'll come back to that. And then he commends them that even though they are poor, this is a poor church, yet he says, you are rich. We'll come back to that later. No critique. And then the instruction is, don't be afraid to suffer. And be faithful even to death. So he's encouraging them on in their faithfulness. And then he makes these marvelous promises that he will give you the crown of life. And then he exhorts them. He who has an ear, let him hear. And then he who uh, hears this and believes will not be hurt at all by the second death. So we'll, we'll get to that in a few moments. But you see that he's, he's instructing them. He's commending them. He's exhorting them. And then he gives them this rich and wondrous promise that has to do with his own title, which is the one who died and came to life again. And he's going to give us life. So we've, we've just sung this fabulous hymn written hundreds of years ago, Faith of Our Fathers Living Still in Spite of Dungeon, Fire, and Sword. Oh, how our hearts beat high with joy whenever we hear God's glorious word. Faith of our fathers, holy faith, we will be true to thee till death. So that's been the song of the Christians uh, throughout all the centuries, and we're going to see what difference it makes as we look at this, uh, as we look at this, these three, these four verses. Okay, let's begin then by looking at verse eight. We're going to see that first thing you see is that Christ absolutely commands our respect. Now, um, you know, you can't uh, get involved in anything until you reach a certain point. Uh, if it's difficult, when you ask yourself, is this worth it? Uh, some of you have played uh, sports, and you know, you're in the springtime working out for track, and you get you know, to the, one of those 440s, and, and you just, or I guess 400, you call them today, 400 meters. You get to the end of that thing, and you just go over and you throw up. You, know? you, ever, you remember spring track practice, just throwing up you know, every day for about two weeks. And about the third day, you're sitting there throwing up, you know, heaving everything. You're thinking, is this worth it? Am I going to keep, why am I doing this? And whenever you do something that's difficult, you'll always get to the point when you're going to ask, is this worth it? It's interesting 
Well, just last night, I wrote this sentence that said, when we engage in something important, there's normally a point beyond which we say, it's no longer worth it. Right as I was writing that sentence, it happened to be when, when Tom Brokaw was on, and Tom Brokaw said this while I, was write, while I was writing this. I just finished that sentence and he said, people are beginning to say about the Iraqi invasion, was it worth it? <laughs> and yes, it's right. You get into anything difficult, you're going to ask, is it worth it? And so what happens is you start paying a price and that begins to bring into question the value of your decision. So, for example, we start losing, we lose over a thousand lives in Iraq. We spend $120 billion with 80 more to come shortly. And then more after that. And you, you spend $200 billion and you lose a thousand American lives. Okay, the price is high. And then you start asking, now let me, let me think. Invading Iraq, was that worth it? All the benefits and the dreams and the hopes that we had had to get remo remove Saddam and install democracy, is it worth that many American lives? You see what happens? Whenever you start paying a certain price, there's kind of a, a triggering point or a tipping point when you begin to ask the question about the value of what you're doing. It's true in anything that costs you something. If you, get, if you invest in a business and you, you put up a million dollars and it doesn't go so well the first three years and you've got to put another million dollars in to save it, and to keep it going, you've got to ask yourself, is it worth it? Maybe I've just you know, cut my losses, or am I going to put another million in? So anytime you start paying heavy costs, you're going to start asking that question. Now, gentlemen, here's the point, of course, that when you get involved in the Christian faith, you're going to start paying a cost. It's going to happen, uh, and probably the sooner the better. Because we're going to find out there's, there's value and virtue to all of this. But when it happens, you begin asking yourself these questions. Am I, am I really, do I really think this is worth it? And so the first thing we've got to look at is Jesus Christ himself. Is he worth it? And what we see is from this vision that he immediately com commands our respect. If you look at verse 8, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. The first thing we want to notice is he is eternal. He is the first and the last. These words come right out of Isaiah, words attributed to Jehovah. And so if you're wondering, does the Bible really say that Jesus is deity himself, that he is the Son of God, that he is God incarnate? Here's just one of many examples in the New Testament where things that are ascribed clearly to God alone in the Old Testament are ascribed to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So there's no doubt about it that these claims are being made by his apostles as well as by Jesus himself. So he says, I'm the first and the last. I'm from the beginning to the end. That is, Jesus Christ is sovereign Lord over everything. You want to know if it's worth it. First thing you want to ask yourself is, whom am I following? And some people, might, people may say, if they're talking about Iraq, who's our leader? George Bush. Well, let's see. Do I like George Bush or not? About 50% of Americans are saying yes and 50% are saying no. So it has a lot to do with the person who's leading us. You get your generals on the field. If, you're, if you've been in the military, you know that one thing that makes a whole lot of difference to you about whether you're going into a battle or not, who's the general who's leading us? Who are the officers who've taken us in there? Do they know what they're doing? Well, here you've got your officer. And gentlemen, my word to you is this guy knows what he's doing. He's been around for a long time. It's called eternity. And he's going to be around a long time after that. And he rules over all the ages. So if you want to know who your commander-in-chief is, you want to know who your, your leader is, here he is, the first and the last. He's it. So we don't have to question the value of what we're doing based on who's taking us into battle. It is the eternal Lord. 
And then we see He is victorious, who died and came to life again. So, okay, you're facing death, He's saying to the Smyrnians. You're facing death. Guess what? So did I. And let me tell you how I came out. Alive. I came out better after death than before death. Before death, I had a body like you. After death, I had a body that can never die. A body that can pass through walls. A body that can go to heaven. A body that can rejoice with my Father. So here I am. I'm standing before you as a picture of your future. You're looking at your future when you look at me. I am the first and the last, the one who died who came to life again. That should remove a few questions in our minds about whether it's worth it. So the first thing you want to do when you get into a difficulty with your Christian faith, when you're being opposed or when you're being marginalized, as Robert prayed in his prayer this morning, when that's happening to you, then the first thing you do is look to Christ. Is He worth it? Do I believe Him? Do I have a commander-in-chief that I trust? Do I believe that He is going to provide for me as He did for Himself? He is the eternal, victorious commander. He commands our respect. Secondly, in verse 9, Christ knows our afflictions. You'll notice that in all of these words to the churches, you have this phrase, I know. What our commander is saying is that he knows. He's the eternal king, and he knows everything that's going on. And you guys, no matter what your afflictions are, what your problems are today, whether it's in your marriage and family, in your finances or your business, in your physical health or the health of somebody you love, he knows. He's not been surprised by this. And he tells us this because it is normal human reaction that when you get into trouble, you say, anybody anybody around here know or care? And you begin to feel lonely. That's what happens when you get into trouble. And what we're being told in the Scriptures here very clearly is, over and over again, seven times, I know. And he's saying here what he knows is our afflictions. There's not a blooming thing you could ever go through and the Lord does not see it and enter into it with you. He knows it intimately. This word knowing can be a very intimate word. So he, he has entered into your afflictions. Some people you know, will ask very tough, tough questions. Uh, how can this kind of suffering come to my mother or my father or my wife or my child? How can someone lose a child? And when that happens, we ask all kinds of questions. We don't know all the answers to them, but I do know this. He came and suffered worse than what the, the, the suffering that we're experiencing. He came and identified with us. You, you find some other religion that, that has their God doing that for them. You won't find it. Our God came to this earth, took on flesh, and suffered everything that we've suffered. has identified with us completely. He knows. And what does He know? Well, He knows, first of all, our poverty. Now, this is a, a very poignant statement here. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Now, Why were they poor? Well, there are several ideas here, uh, all of which make sense to me. We'll get into uh, one of them in just a moment when we talk about the slander. But uh, Smyrna, Smyrna, just like Ephesus, was a Roman city, and the worship of the day was to worship the emperor. And Smyrna, years before this, had been given a unique privilege to build a particular temple for Rome because of their devotion to the the pagan religion. So Smyrna was known and proud of their reputation as a pagan worshiping city. Now what happens in pagan worship, as you know, 
there are these temples that are built and there are food offerings that are given to the false gods. And then uh, there is revelry that takes place after that because the gods were typically fertility gods. And the, the kind of the sacrament, you know, is not uh, bread and wine as in our case. The sacrament was to have sex with a prostitute. And therefore, you're having the sacrament of fertility and trying to encourage the, the pagan god, uh, the pagan gods to bring fertility to the land. And you can find, of course, why men particularly like this religion a lot. Uh, and I'm dead serious. Uh, if, you, if you look at false religions, you almost always find there's some compelling reason why people won't let go of it. There's some compelling reason. Uh, and I'll just say to you, if, if any of you here are Muslim, I'll just go ahead and say, uh, I have to say that that's a man's religion. Uh, the, I don't think you'll find a, a majority vote among the women uh, in Islam. The men can have four wives. The men can do this, that, and the other. And the women are basically oppressed. And so the, the men are in charge. It's a, it's a religion, in my opinion, that, that simply expresses male ego unrestrained. Well, we all have some reason uh, for the religion we choose. And that was one of the reasons for them. They kind of like the parties. Now, let me tell you what else would happen. If you were a businessman in Smyrna, you would have belonged to a trade guild, whether it was carpentry or jewelry or whatever it was. There's a guild, a professional guild for all those trades. And the trade guilds committed themselves to the worship of Caesar uh, as emperor. And the trade guilds would have, you know how you do in your own trade guilds, your professional associations, you have your annual flings and, and you'll, you'll go out to you know some somewhere in Florida or on the west coast California or maybe uh, Hawaii or something and and have these big celebrations of your company and all your people and you know all kinds of revelry takes place in those things unfortunately uh, I went to a few of them myself when I was a uh, steel salesman I, I still remember the New England Railroad uh, Association because I sold rail I sold steel so I, and I part of my sales were rails to uh, and other steel uh, things to the railroad industry. And so we go to the, the railroad, New England Railroad Club, or whatever it is. And we're just sitting there, you know, everybody's having their drinks, and we're sitting there eating, and here comes a naked woman just walking across the stage. Everybody's like, yay! You know? By that time, everybody had enough drinks, I'm just sitting there, oh, man. And the, my boss, who's sitting, we're sitting at round tables just like this, and the, my boss was sitting across from me, he saw my red face, and he just kind of looked at me and went, oh, Wilson, you're pitiful. Well, that's the kind of stuff that goes on. Well, that, that was going on in Smyrna. And, ju you know, just like pagan worship with the prostitutes, well, the trade guilds would do the same thing. They would offer food to the idols, and then they would have their big banquet eating the food offered to idols. And what the Christians in those trade guilds would have to do is to demur and to pull away. And they would not participate in the feasts of the trade guilds. Well, so what happens? You get cut out of the trade guild. Because no trade guild wants to have Caesar on their back because you are not worshiping as you're supposed to worship. And then they come under the scorn of the Roman authorities. So they would just cut you out. And how are you going to do business if you don't belong to the guild? You're not going to do much except among Christians and maybe a few sympathetic residents who secretly will do business with you. So these people were poor, not because they were stupid, not because they couldn't be educated, not because they didn't have a good work ethic. They were poor because they had been oppressed because of their Christian faith. So Jesus simply says, gentlemen, I know. I know you're poor. 
And he sympathizes with us because what? He was poor. If there ever was one who was poor, it was the Lord Jesus Christ, whom, about whom we are told he never had a place to lay his head. He was the poor of the poor. And he chose poverty so that he could give himself to others. And gentlemen, if because of your faith in Jesus Christ you are poor or you're not as successful as someone else, you look to the Lord Jesus Christ who, who himself became poor that we might become rich. And that's exactly what we're supposed to do. And you know what else we're supposed to do? We're supposed to like it. I'm serious. We find our joy in identifying with Jesus Christ. I was saying to someone yesterday, there's nothing like death to bring clarity to life. And you know, I've, I've never been to a funeral, have you, where the pastor gets up to give the eulogy and he says, now I want to tell you about this guy. He was really great. He inherited a $6 million business and he got it to $30 million. And the ROI was an increasing extraordinary rate over 15 years. I'd like you to look at this little chart to see how successful he was. Have you ever been to a funeral like that where we're going to look at your stats and see how great, how much money you made, what your return on investment was, and, and how many people? No, we don't, nobody gives a rip about that. What they care about in most funerals, do we have any sense that this guy's going to make it to heaven? Do we have any sense of confidence that he's okay? that he's in the presence of the Lord? That's the number one question. And the number two question, is the wife and are the children sitting there in the first pew grateful that they had him as a husband and a father? That's what you're thinking. That's what I'm thinking. That's what everybody's thinking. And that's the only thing that matters. There's nothing like death to clarify what life is about. And you'll be a lot wiser a lot sooner if you begin to live life in view of your funeral and what you want to count. You know what counts. You're playing a game uh, with, with all, all the, the money and the finances and all the car you drive and the vacations you take. You're playing this game, and it's a denial of what the reality is that when you get to your funeral, we all know it's important. Why don't you live your life in view of what's important? And sometimes that leads to poverty. And if it's because of Jesus Christ, take delight in it. And this is exactly what Jesus says to this church. Look what he says here. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. You're wealthy. And what does he mean here? He means that you're content. You've got friends. You've got meaning to your life. You've got joy in your heart. You're grateful for who you are and whose you are. You're, you're thankful for the purpose and mission in life that he's given you. You're rich. And gentlemen, this is the wealth that means anything at all. This is the wealth that does play well at the funeral, if you want to know the truth. Because it's the wealth that plays well in life. And it's, it's so sad how, how so many people, people in this room, will spend the next 20 years trying to acquire. And after you acquire a little bit more than you thought you were going to, then you'll realize it doesn't make a hill of beans difference in, in life for you or anybody else. And you've probably sacrificed a bunch of relationships along the way. So Jesus commends them because even in their poverty, there's a sense of wealth among them. And that's exactly the way it's got to be with anybody who's following Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because if you have Him, you do not need anything else. And if you're seeking to acquire, 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 the statement you're making is that He's not enough. Now, I'm not talking about feeding yourself, clothing yourself, and doing the same for your dependents. That's Christian responsibility. And the Christian work ethic has a 2,000-year history, and I'll just rest my case. 
I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the acquisitive spirit that simply wants to have more than somebody else so that you can feel better about yourself. That is a denial of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in your life. That's what it is. Let's face it. And the solution, therefore, is to look to Him as your sufficiency who gives you the satisfaction that riches will never give you. So He commends them. Even though you're poor, you're rich. Don't you love people like that? I remember years ago, uh, the first church I served in in, uh, Elizabethan, Tennessee. And there was a guy there who had come to Christ and started coming to church. A really fine young man. And he was in a family business. I won't describe it any further. And uh, a successful guy financially. But also, as he followed Christ, he was also very generous and he helped a lot of people and he got involved in missions. Just did a lot of things with his resources. But he told me, about three years after he became a Christian, he told me that for Christmas, he was a single guy and in probably 30, you know, uh, middle 30s. Uh, and he told me that for Christmas one year, instead of spending it with his own family, what he did was he went and spent it with a missionary family that was living in town. And the missionary family was just in our town for a, a period of time, not permanently, and they didn't have anything. I mean, even when they were home on the field, they didn't have much. But when they were here, they had almost nothing. And my friend told me, he said, we sat on boxes and we had a little card table that somebody had given them. And we had very simple food. And the presents given to the kids were things that the mom and dad had handmade, carved out of wood or, or you know, sewn or other things. He said, it was the most glorious Christmas I've ever spent in my whole life. Why? Because there was love. Because there was, there was real giving from the heart. And because the contrast between having nothing and having everything was so stark that the only possible answer could have been the presence of, the Christ, of Christ in that home. So, gentlemen, don't get discouraged by your poverty, or by your financial troubles. This may be the very time that Christ is trying to reveal His all-sufficiency to you. Don't get discouraged because things aren't going right in your body. You're sick or somebody else is sick. This may be the very time that Christ is going to show you a new sufficiency you never knew before. Don't get discouraged if the marriage is not going great. Uh, hey, you do your part. Don't get discouraged. This may be the very time that Christ is going to show His sufficiency to you in relationships and satisfy your needs. As a matter of fact, that's the only way you can really be the husband you want to be to your wife in the first place. Okay. Then He says, I know your afflictions, your poverty, and I know the slander. You've been slandered. Believe me, folks, I know it. I've got my eye on you, and I'm listening to everything. Look at His description of it. He says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, what's going on here? It's pretty strong language. <laughs> he will not need to send any, any follow-up memos after that one to tell us what he really thought. Uh, <clears throat> there's pretty rough slander going on. What's the deal? Well, in the Roman Empire, uh, everyone was required to worship, be involved in emperor worship with the exception of the Jews because of their long-standing faith in not worshiping any but Jehovah alone, the Roman Empire for a number of years had allowed exception. So they would bring offerings, but they would not be offerings of worship to Caesar as God. So they were granted excuse. For a long time, in the first century, the Christians were considered a Jewish sect. 
and therefore were given exemption. What was beginning to happen in this period, which we believe to be around 90 to 95 A.D., under the emperor Domitian, who was a very bad character, and he was persecuting uh, the church again. And at this stage, the Jews were saying those people are not a Jewish sect. And they were being very clear and very loud about it. And they were also slandering the Christians and saying that they're not real believers at all. So what John is saying here is that the synagogue was not a real synagogue. A real synagogue is a synagogue uh, is, is a Greek word that just simply means to gather together. It's a gathering. It's an assembly, like, an, uh, like a church. Uh, this synagogue, a true synagogue, would be a gathering of God's people who receive His Messiah. And you know the Apostle Paul would go from synagogue to synagogue. That was his first stopping point. And those who believed, who were, as Paul would describe them, the real inward Jews, would believe in Messiah. And so the real Jew is the one who receives Jesus as Messiah, for which the Jews were awaiting. Those who did not receive Him were cut off from the covenant family. This is Paul's teaching. You may not agree with that, but that's what he was teaching all across Asia and Europe. So, for example, in Romans chapter 11, you find that he teaches that those who did not receive Messiah, those who rejected Him, were themselves rejected or cut off from the olive tree, God's church. And those branches that were unbelieving were cut off. And then the Gentile branches, the Gentiles who believed, were grafted in to the stump that remained. So there's one tree with the original Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and with these wild Gentiles who got grafted in. But the unbelieving Jews were cut off. And what Paul is saying, or what John is saying here is, look, this is a synagogue of Satan. That means the devil. The word Satan simply means accuser. So Satan himself is your accuser, and he works through others to accuse you. Now, that doesn't mean other people are Satan. They're human beings. But they're being used by Satan to accuse you. So, gentlemen, look, if you're living a clear, a clear Christian life, you're boldly standing up for what you believe, you're going to be accused. The devil happens not to like you very much. Sorry to bring that news to you, but that's just the way it is. If you identify with Jesus Christ, you're identifying with the devil's arch enemy. And so you identify with him, he's going to come after you. All you have to do is look at Iraq. Anybody who identifies with an American is dead meat as far as the terrorists are concerned. And there are a bunch of them there from Syria and Saudi Arabia and Iran and Afghanistan. They're coming from everywhere to clobber the Americans and anybody who identifies with them. That's the reason, of course, for those of us here who are Protestant evangelicals, the evangelicals are seen as pro-American. Whether they are or not, that's how they're seen. And they're in grave danger uh, in Iraq. So that's just the way it goes. If you identify with the arch enemy, you are now the enemy. Even Bush said that. If you identify with the terrorists, you're now our enemy. And that's what Satan is saying. So don't get so surprised when you're opposed. And don't even get surprised if a church who abandons the gospel takes you on. That happens all the time, doesn't it? Uh, if you're in Christian leadership and you make a statement about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, there's no other way to be saved but through Him, you can expect a salvo from the church that doesn't believe the gospel. And there are a bunch of churches that don't believe the gospel. 
So here you have one of the early examples of how a, uh, an assembly of worship loses its distinctive and doesn't any longer uh, consist uh, of true worshipers and is no longer a place, a household of God. It's a synagogue of Satan. And there are churches that are synagogues of Satan. Once you abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're representing some counterfeit. I'm not saying that your intent is to say, you know, we want to destroy the gospel and destroy the Christian faith, but when you offer a counterfeit, that's exactly what you're doing. And a counterfeit is anything that doesn't believe in Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation through His sacrifice on the cross and through His bodily resurrection that actually took place. It's not a metaphor. It's not some kind of fantasy. It's not something to make you feel good. It actually happened physically. And you substitute that with some other story about metaphors and fantasy land and you are offering a counterfeit for the gospel and it becomes a synagogue of Satan and you'll find those synagogues will always oppose the real gospel. So, gentlemen, don't get surprised. This, this goes back to the first century. It goes back before that. It goes back to the fall. Anytime you identify with God and His gospel, you're going to face opposition. So Christians will experience suffering. Paul teaches this in 2 Timothy. He says anyone who lives a godly life will be persecuted. So if you're not persecuted, you're never marginalized, you're never, uh, you're never attacked, you're never left out, you're, you're never scorned, you've got to be asking yourself, am I on the right team? Uh, anyone who seeks to live a godly life will be persecuted. And Paul said in Philippians chapter 1.29 that just as we receive uh, the gift of repentance, we receive the gift of, we receive the gift of suffering. So you receive the gift of faith and repentance and suffering. It's a gift. And you can look in 2 Corinthians 11, 23-27, and you'll find a little litany there of Paul's little pleasures that he enjoyed uh, through shipwreck, being bitten by a snake, <laughs> nearly drowning, being stoned and left for dead, and all these things. And Paul had, Paul had a theology of suffering. John had a theology of suffering because John's writing in exile from the island of Patmos. like He's writing from Alcatraz. And, and, and Paul had all this suffering. So they know this stuff. And they thought about it, meditated upon it, and searched the Scriptures. They had to have a theology of suffering. And the Christians must rejoice in suffering. This is absolutely crucial. Now, look as an example in Acts chapter 5. And there you have a case where Peter and John are going before the Sanhedrin. This is John in his earlier years. Sanhedrin hauls them in because they told them not to preach and they kept preaching and they kept healing. And the Sanhedrin said, we told you to stop. And the apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. You're putting us in an impossible situation. And sometimes the, the governments will put you in impossible situations and you have a choice to make. Are you going to get along? You're going to go along with the authorities? You're going to go along with 95% of the crowd? Or are you going to choose Christ? And the apostles chose Christ and said, we will rather obey God than to obey you. Then you remember Gamaliel said, whoa, 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 gentlemen, back off. If this thing is really of God, it will prove itself. And if it's not, it won't. Remember the wisdom of Gamaliel. So, the Sanhedrin, out of the kindness of their heart, only flogged the daylights out of them and didn't kill them. And then what happened? Peter and John left there rejoicing because, we are told, they were considered worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. Wow. That was their attitude. They stood boldly 
And then they didn't complain. Well, God, now we stood boldly and now we're, we're still hurting. Right? What kind of God are you? That's the typical American, Western, 21st century response. That if I obey God, surely everything's going to go fine for me. He'll remove my cancer. God, where'd you go? No. God, we rejoice that we're considered worthy to suffer for your name. And when you stand up for him in whatever way you do, and you have to if you're going to be faithful to him, and you're going to, be, you're going to face scorn and marginalizing, you rejoice. Jesus says it in the Beatitudes. What's the last Beatitude? Blessed are those who suffer, who are persecuted. Just like the prophets who came before you, he said, you'll be persecuted. He said, rejoice and be glad because the prophets before you were persecuted in the same way. Rejoice. Why? Because now you have taken the prophet's mantle to yourself. You're identifying with this long strain and train of people who have been faithful to God. Rejoice in that. I remember R.C. Sproul was saying one time when he, uh, he was in seminary and someone really came at him about his evangelical faith and he went to his mentor, Dr. John Gerstner. He said, Dr. Gerstner... Uh, gosh, this is just terrible. And Gerson just leaned back and had a big smile on his face and said, R.C., rejoice. Rejoice. You've been considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. So, gentlemen, when you let yourself get down, you've lost perspective. As soon as you do that, just tell yourself you've lost perspective about what life is all about. You're to be rejoicing and gladly suffering for His cause. Okay, let's look at verse 10. Having said this, that we have a great... Commander-in-chief whom we respect and we have one who knows our afflictions. He now demands our loyalty. Look at verse 10. He says, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death. So, first of all, do not fear. Get your heads up. When I was in Jordan... uh, uh, just about six weeks ago. And with these Iraqi pastors, 11 of them, with their families, and some of them had been whipped and beaten and tortured, and certainly all of them had been threatened, and they were absolutely worn out. Uh, none of them had really had a vacation in 10 years. They'd been working every day, and now day and night for 10 years. And they come out to this retreat center just to worship together, to fellowship together, to study together. And... For myself, who lives in a very protected environment, in a very protected age, the 21st century in America, it doesn't get a whole lot safer than that, honestly. I'm there as a visitor, and so I'm going to be very interested to see what they say. So all these pastors are gathered there, and the speaker for the morning is Dr. Manis Abdul-Nur from Egypt, who's been in prison on many occasions, who himself has been threatened with death over and over again, who's had guns and pistols pointed to him, and the trigger pulled, and something would jam with the gun. I think I told you that story. Dr. Manis Abdul-Nur has been through these things over and over again. So here's this 78-year-old man, and I'm wondering, what is he going to say to these young men? And he basically says to them, do not fear. They're the ones who are to fear, not you. The doctrine of the resurrection prevents any of us from quaking in fear. And we must live our lives and we must learn to stare down the barrels of guns, and we must do our work without being fear, without being afraid. Dwight Moody, Dwight L. Moody used to say, you know, there are two tickets to heaven. Uh, 
when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. That's, that's second class. He said, first class is I will trust in you and not be afraid. Certainly, we're all afraid of things. There are certain things that can make us afraid, but we speak to ourselves. We preach to ourselves. And we are not afraid. Why? Because Satan is defeated. Christ has defeated Satan. We'll get into this in chapter 20 of Revelation. He's bound. He is restrained. He cannot do anything that the Lord Jesus Christ does not allow Him to do because on the cross, we are told, He nailed to that cross the principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. That's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. He defeated Him, and the devil knows He's defeated. So don't you go acting like He's not defeated. And when you quake and fear and cower before your enemy... You're acting as though you don't believe in a resurrected Jesus Christ who defeated the evil one. So the first thing is, Satan is defeated. Let's act like it. Secondly, Satan's afflictions are God's tests. If you look here in the text, he says, I tell you the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. So look, there's a, there's a bigger agenda when the scorn comes to you, when the marginalization comes to you, even if... if you're cut out of your business or some, whatever happens to you. Or you're cut out of the next cocktail party. I don't know what it is. There's a test here that's a divine test that God is, is performing. This for your good. Thirdly, Satan's efforts fulfill God's purposes. Satan is not doing anything that God has not designed for your good. If you look in Job chapter 1, you'll see it. Satan... Uh, is called before the court of God. Before Satan does all those terrible, horrible things to Job, God says to him, have you considered my servant Job? (laughs) God was behind this. Why? He was taking a righteous man who believed in him. He was saying to Satan, I challenge you. You you can't cause him to curse me. It doesn't matter what you do. And, And Satan, remember, said, well, you put a hedge around him. I can't get at him. And God says, look, I'll take the hedge down. You can get at him any way you want to except for his nephesh, except for his soul. So Satan does his work, boils everywhere, nagging, horrible wife, loses his ten children, business collapses. He's, I mean, you talk about miserable. This guy's miserable, but he doesn't curse God. That's the drama. And God was testing Job. And then by the end of the book, you see Job has just as many children, more wealth, happiness, and all the rest. I think he still has his nagging wife, but he's got everything else all right. So Satan can't do anything except what God designs. Satan is not running out of control. You don't have a world that's bipolar with God over here on this side and Satan is over here on this side. And if we pray hard enough, God may win. Look, God is enthroned and Satan is cowering before him in the pit of hell. He's cowering. He's terrified. And that's what's made him so furious. And that's the reason when you see his onslaught, it so, seems to be so vicious. It's because he's no, he knows he's wiped out. His time is over. Satan's efforts strengthen God's people. It is so true. If you go into an adversarial environment with faith in Jesus Christ, what happens, gentlemen, every time? You may come out with bumps and bruises. You may have fallen and tripped along the way. But you come out of that adversarial environment stronger than when you went into it. And every single one of you who is facing a major trial in your life right now, I promise you, with your faith in Jesus Christ, you will come through that trial stronger than when you went into it. And that's promised in 1 Peter chapter 1. He is refining our faith like gold. And then lastly, the time of testing will be short. We don't have time to look at this in detail. But he says in verse 10, 
Uh, you will suffer persecution for ten days. What in the world does he mean by that? Well, we've already said that uh, John and Jesus in his vision has already made reference to Daniel without citing verses. There's all, there are all kinds of parallels. We'll see even more of this when we get into the hairy stuff later on, chapter 4 and beyond. He's making references to Daniel. Now, what is it about Daniel with these ten days? In Daniel chapter 1, do you remember? The king was giving food to the young men to prepare them to be the leaders in his administration. And Daniel and his three buddies were brought in as, as the Hebrews who would represent the ethnic group of Hebrews, the minority group. They were brought in to be trained as well. And they were given food from the king's table. And you remember Daniel said, no way, Jose. And why did he say no? Was it just because they were serving pork? I, I, I doubt it. What was happening was the food from the king's table was food offered to idols, probably. And to eat at the king's table was to accept the, the king worship that was going on in Babylon. So if you eat from his hand, you are participating and buying in and swearing your fealty to him as deity. And Daniel said, no way. I'm not going to eat food offered to idols, and I'm not going to join in that kind of fellowship. And so, of course, you remember what happened. The chief of staff and others came to Daniel and said, we can't have this because if you don't eat the king's food, you'll be puny and you won't look very good compared to these other guys. And Daniel said, try us for ten days. What happened at the end of ten days? Of course, Daniel and his buddies looked rosy. They had rosy complexion. They looked tough, strong. And then they put all the men on the same diet that Daniel and his friends were in. Ten days. And, and what Jesus is saying, look, hang on. Ten days. It may be 40 years, but with God, a thousand years is but a day. Ten days. Compared to eternity, it's nothing. Hang on. The suffering will be short. And that's what's promised to us. Be faithful to death. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where men make huge mistakes in their discipleship. They want to be Christians. They like many of the things that Christian, Christianity brings to them. They want to get started. They get excited about it. You know, there's some many good things that happen with Christianity. You kind of get a, a worldview. You kind of get some ethical principles that you can live by. You can make some friends. You can have a sense that you're offering thanks to somebody up there in heaven somewhere. You can have, if you like art, there's some beautiful music in the church and artwork in the church. There are many benefits that you can derive from being in the church. And many of us come in because of those benefits. And I have to say, I probably came in because of the intellectual benefits, because I could see a systematic worldview. And I was converted after I joined the church. I didn't know it when I joined the church. I didn't know that I joined as a non-believer, but I did. But I came in because of certain benefits, and I could go through them all. And then what happens is you finally face your first trial. Big one. Now the rubber meets the road. You say, I'm not sure it's worth it. And here's where you find out whether you really know if you belong to Christ. Whether you see that it is worth it, even if you die. And let me give you a very practical way that you find out if, if you've got it. Let's say, for example, that you're very miserable in your marriage. She hasn't committed adultery. She hasn't abandoned you. She is willing to try to work out your differences, but you are just sick and tired of it, and you say something like this. Listen very carefully because I've heard you all say it. 
And guys like you and me all the time. You know what? I just don't think God wants me to be that unhappy. That's where the rubber meets the road in the West in the 21st century. Because you don't think God wants you to be unhappy. Can you imagine the Apostle John writing the Smyrnians and saying to them, you know, now you guys, be Christians until it really costs you something because God doesn't want you to be unhappy. Have you ever read anything like that in the Bible? What you see in the Bible over and over again is you walk with Jesus if it kills you. And if you're walking with Him, it probably will. Or at least it will feel like it a few times in your life. And then you will be assured that you really know Him because you then and only then will know He's worth it. And He's worth your unhappiness in your marriage. And He's worth your failing in your business. And He's worth your dying because you can't do this, that, or the other. He's worth your misery because you can't take the vacation everybody else is taking. He's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth it. And that's the reason that we are faithful unto death. And anything short of this is a denial of the magnificence of the radiant Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is that great and if you don't think He's that great, you don't yet know Him as you need to know Him. That's what John's saying. You all are suffering. I see it all, he says. You're poor because of your faith. You're being slandered by the religious leaders in your community. And you've been faithful. And I want to say to you, keep it up if it kills you. And I've had a person in our church say, you know, I heard the pastor one time say that I should be faithful to my husband even if it kills me. And I don't think I like that. Well, I'm sorry. That's the way it is. And I think I'm Dr. Feelgood. Why? Because I have a perspective that goes beyond this life. Because I happen to know you're only married for a little while, and that's only as long as you live on this earth. And then you're no longer married. And my job as a teacher of the gospel is to help you get through this honoring Jesus Christ. And this is the way the Apostle Paul said it. So that I may exalt Him in my body, whether by life or by death. And when you go into a business deal and somebody's shading it and you say no, if it kills you, you say no. Because Jesus Christ is worth it. It doesn't matter what happens to you. It doesn't matter if you never see those men again or never get an opportunity to cut a deal like that. What difference does it make? The difference that is made is whether you've exalted Christ, whether by life or by death. That's all that matters. And I tell you, when you get home, you'll say, you know what, that, pre- that country preacher back in Memphis was right. He is that great. And why am I, Dr. Feelgood? Because Christ promises us eternal life. The last point we're going to look at. He says you will receive a crown. It's a present reality. You've got a crown on your head right now. The reason we say it's a present reality in chapter 3, verse 11, He says to the church there, don't lose your crown. In other words, you've got a crown right now. And when you stand up for Christ, you're wearing your crown. Wear it. Don't surrender that crown for some stupid crown that someone in this life is going to offer you with the inspiration of Satan behind it. It's a future reality. You get it at death, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.8, I finished, I fought the fight, finished the race, and now there's a crown of righteousness for me and all those who long for His appearing. So immediately when I die, I'm crowned. Just like a victory at the end of a race, I'm crowned as, as a victorious saint, just like Jesus Christ is crowned. And then, of course, there's the crown at Christ's return. When He comes back, He shall crown us all. That's what we're living for, is the pleasure of God. And we're going to get it through this crown of life. Well, This message made a difference. I close with this. 
got three minutes. Let me tell you this story. There was a young man, probably a little boy, who was in the church in Smyrna when this letter was delivered. And 20 years later, he actually became a bishop in Smyrna, a young bishop in 115 A.D. And he lived all the way up until he was 86 years old. When he was 86, he was still a bishop. He was being pursued by the Roman authorities who told him that it was either Jesus or Caesar, and he couldn't have both. At the pleading of the church, their bishop fled into the hillsides and waited. The Roman authorities came out to get him, and he simply fed them a meal and went back with them. He didn't, didn't fight them or seek to flee. And they, they said this to him. His name was Polycarp. He was the bishop of Smyrna. They said to him, Swear by the genius of Caesar. Swear and I will release you. Revile the Christ. So they brought him back to Smyrna, took him to the amphitheater, held court there, and they said to him, Swear allegiance to Caesar. Revile Jesus Christ. Or they went on to say, We're going to throw you to the beasts. Here's what Polycarp said. Eighty and six years have I served Him, and He has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my King who saved me? And so then the infuriated Jews and Gentiles gathered wood for the pile, and Polycarp stood by the stake. They were going to burn him. And he asked that they not fasten him to it. He said, I'll stay there at the stake myself. And this was his prayer. O Lord, Almighty God, the Father of Thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received a knowledge of Thee, I thank Thee that Thou hast brought me worthy, this, thought me worthy this day and this hour to share the cup of Thy Christ among the number of Thy witnesses. And then the fire was kindled and he was burned to death. And since the wind was blowing, and the fire was taking long to burn him. He was suffering greatly. They finally stabbed him with a sword to kill him. Now, Polycarp is seated before Jesus Christ right now. Right now. Now, let's just interview him for a moment. <laughs> Polycarp, are you sorry that you stood up for your Savior? Are you sorry that you let your life end in a flame? Are you sorry that you had to give up your life because those around you were opposing you? No. You say, I won a great victory that day. I exalted Jesus Christ with my body that day. I am so grateful that that day existed in my life. It was the greatest day of my life, not just because I went to heaven, but because I got to go to heaven making witness for Him. And gentlemen, the word witness is the word Materion, from which we get the word martyr. That's what a witness is, one who lays his life down, even to the death, to exalt Jesus Christ. Nothing less than that is acceptable for someone who has seen the Son of Man high and lifted up. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you'll help us to join with Polycarp and Luther and many others who boldly pronounced your word even at the expense of their life. And Lord, give us great joy in it. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.